Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike, and joining me on today's episode are Rory and Emmett from the My Wall Street Analyst team. This week, we're talking about Man United takeover rumors and whether sports teams should be public companies. We discuss Bob Iger's return as a CEO of Disney, and Rory breaks down PayPal's recent downturn. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Rory, Emmett, welcome to another episode of Stock Club. Uh, have you been following the World Cup Oh, bits and bobs. Yeah. It's kind of on at bad times, isn't it? Like 10 o'clock, 1 o'clock. Yeah, I'm glad just, they leave the, the, the kind of bigger games to later on. Yeah, I've just loved my favorite moment was uh, Ronaldo's claiming the goal that just didn't oh, exist. By hair. <laughs> it, looks, hair. it just looks so bad, him being so disgusted that the goal wasn't <laughs> given to him. Guys, do you have um, a family draw? Like, have you got a, have you got teams that you're following? No, we didn't do that this year. Didn't do it. We this didn't year. do it in the office either. Actually, we usually do it in the office. Yeah, I think we we're slightly yeah, protesting right. in the office, are we? Yeah, slightly protesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the lowest form of protest we could muster. <laughs> the lazy protest. I went to Ireland's last friendly there about two weeks ago. Ireland v Norway in the Aviva Stadium, and honestly, I think I would have enjoyed queuing in the passport office for two hours. <laughs> it was just so uninspiring. It was awful. Yeah, Very unpatriotic I, of you. <laughs> I've been to a few Irish friendlies there. Quite boring now, I have to say. Now, as World Cup talk is on topic now, because one of the best performing stocks in the market last week was actually Man United. So the stock was up 63% from Monday to Friday off the back of takeover rumors. So the Glazer family is looking to sell the company finally for a lot of people. Um, they've advised their bankers that they're willing to listen to offers in excess of $5 billion. Rory, Long time United fan that you are. First of all, congrats. I don't think anyone is going to be sad to see. Thank you. (laughs) I don't think anyone's going to be sad to see the back of the Glazers, but this isn't a sports podcast, so we won't dive too deep into that. But how will an acquisition like this work for investors in the company? I imagine any buyer would intend to take it private and not keep it as a public company. Damn, I was slightly disappointed. I thought I was going to get one week to fulfill my actual dream of being a sports reporter there. But, uh, um, no, I mean, in the actual announcement the Glazers made, uh, it was all a bit kind of corporate speak. They didn't actually come out and say that the club was up for sale. Rather, they were exploring, um, strategic alternatives. And I suppose that could mean a lot of things like, um, investment in the club some sort of minority ownership, some sort of deal for the stadium. However, I think, I mean, if you're like me and you've been following this for a while, you get any sense of the Glazers and the kind of iron grip that family kind of holds over the club. I would be surprised if anyone was actually interested in doing anything other than a full sale. Um, I'm not sure the kind of people <laughs> that someone else would like to work with. Uh, for public investors in that company, the truth is we don't really know what's going to happen. But in the event that an investor or company was coming in to take the club private, then it would work very much just like a normal acquisition. You know, individual investors won't have a say in the matter, uh, considering the Glazer family controls, I think, 97% of the voting power in the club at the moment. Um, but the shares would be acquired at a price. 
Uh, as of yesterday, the stock was trading about $21 per share. That valued the company around $3.5 billion. Um, however, like trying to stick a value on a football club like this is incredibly difficult. They're, they're just, these aren't just any old businesses. You know, there's a huge amount of kind of prestige tied to clubs like this. There's a long history behind the club. And there's also the fact that clubs like this don't come up for sale very often. And I know that's weird considering we've seen three be put up for sale in what is a pretty short amount of time, but that is really rare. Um, a club of Manchester United stature, you know, I know I'm a fan here, but there's probably no more famous club in the world with perhaps the exception of Barcelona or Real Madrid. Um, and both those clubs are owned by the members, which would make, uh, like a takeover really just complicated. Yeah, so Barcelona is about to be owned by the bank soon, but that's a different, <laughs> that's a different conversation. So yeah, like it's a hugely differentiated product. There's a lot of reasons why investors would like to own it, ranging from, you know, genuine love of the club to sports washing, which we've seen at other clubs in recent times, to just having it as a kind of trophy. And just a few days ago, we heard reports that Apple could potentially be interested in it, which would be a real shock move for them. <laughs> Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And there's, I mean, I there's, that was there's, very strange. I didn't hear that. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, that's just a rumor, but, um, yeah, there's, there's loads of figures being thrown around. Uh, you, there could be a real bidding war about to break up over this. Uh, so you touched on it there and I, I suppose this is going against kind of what you said, but d- just the fact that Chelsea was recently acquired for 5.2 billion by billionaire Todd Bowley. Liverpool's owners, uh, Fenway Sports Group, are reportedly putting up the club for sale. Is this is the Glazers, are the Glazers making this announcement now? Is this an opportune time for them, or would would this even be an after effect of kind of the infamous European Super League being scrapped? What, why is there such a buying time right now? So I think there's a number of things kind of happening all at once, um, probably none of which are making them want to sell by themselves, but together are probably pushing them to at least consider it. Uh, you said like the European Super Cup being scrapped was certainly one. Um, for those who don't follow soccer, that was the kind of proposed tournament that would be played by just the biggest teams in Europe with very little opportunity for smaller clubs to rise through the ranks and join it. Mm. It was uh, a very... Americanization of soccer, I think. Yeah. Trying to bring uh, yeah, in franchises it, and like. Yeah. yeah. Um, that proposal was met with pretty much universal criticism from football fans um, and regulatory bodies. Uh, it was quickly abandoned after protests and public pressure. The Glazers, along with other big Premier League bosses, were very much behind that. They saw it as a way to kind of juice the popularity of the big teams and, you know, generate more revenue from their star power. And it's not just the Super League, you know, I think there was plenty of even wilder plans that they had. They're now, you know, talking about doing matches in various countries, similar to the, how the NFL plays games in England and now Germany now. Uh, and I think the pushback that they got about the league basically, you know, gave them a signal that they weren't going to get away with some of those more uh, elaborate plans. And I think, you know, there could be an element of backlash against the World Cup being in Qatar at the moment that could have them rethinking their place in the sport. But yeah, I mean, also the fact that the Liverpool owners have put the club up for sale is also a factor, I'm sure. Like like I said, these clubs don't go up for sale very often. There's a limited amount of investors out there who would be able to afford them. So obviously the Glazers think that they have a better product. Best to get it out there while those investors are considering making a big move. Yeah. And then Man United has been a public company since 2012. I mean, I'm not sure if it's known by a lot of people, fans or investors alike, but this is probably a reason why, barring last week's rise, its stock has basically 
been completely flat in that time. And if you look at the amount of money that's been pumped up into football in the last 10 years and how much more viewing rights and Champions League money and all the rest, especially with Premier League clubs, how can Man United stock have been flat for the 10 years that all that has happened? Yeah, so here's here's kind of one of the reasons that fans of the club would have been very much against the Glazers and their ownership of the club. The Glazer family came in and purchased Man United for about £800 million. However, that purchase was really highly leveraged. They pretty they put only kind of a sliver of, of the cash in themselves. And that first round of debt in particular was at a really exorbitant interest rate, somewhere around 14%. Now, for the first few years of their ownership, that wasn't a huge problem because the club was still performing well. They still had who many would consider to be the greatest football manager of all time in Alex Ferguson. And they were, you know, performing on the pitch, winning trophies. Since Ferguson retired, things have not gone so well. They never really found a suitable replacement. They failed to win a domestic title um, and have really fallen down the ranks. I mean, this was a club that for the previous 15 years had always been winning or at least challenging for the domestic league and were usually expected to get to kind of the later stages of the European leagues. And suddenly that success just stopped. So, it's also over this time that the Glazers started paying themselves a big dividends. So even though, you know, the Glazers, to their credit, have vastly improved the commercial opportunities at United, the sad fact is that revenue being generated hasn't been put back in the club. And that's what the fans are really, you know, protesting about, what they're really upset about. They have gone out and bought a couple of really big names, the likes of Ronaldo. But, you know, these have typically been kind of big name signings. There's never really been any, there's never really been any kind of strategy or long-term vision for the team. The stadium and the facilities haven't seen much improvement in 20 years. Meanwhile, you have other clubs like Arsenal, Tottenham, our big rivals, Manchester City have done massive renovations or built totally new stadiums in that time. And you just can't get away with that in the Premier League these days. There's just a huge amount of competition, both in terms of investments made on and off the pitch and United have risked slipping from being kind of one of the most valuable teams in the world to just being another team. Yeah, and you mentioned the rivals there. And I think what's interesting about sports teams and franchises in America and everything is that they've been really good private investments for a lot of people. I think uh, Fenway Sports Group is an example with Liverpool. Uh, Golden State Warriors is another one. They've seen huge growth in value in the last decade, but... The few public companies, the few public sports teams have struggled. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think there's a difference there? Well, I think, I think I challenged the original statement there in that they're all good private investments. Like there's been a huge amount of influx of money into professional sports over the last 30 years. You know, we've seen major increases in things like television rights and sponsorship rights. And there's a lot of interest coming from like betting companies and cryptocurrencies. Um, but that money has typically been focused in a few of the top leagues and a few of the top teams, which has actually created this kind of big wealth inequality issue and private investments in kind of smaller teams, particularly in like the English league anyway, has been played with bankruptcies and financial panic, particularly during the pandemic. In terms of teams that are on the public markets, you know, there's not many. And the ones that are usually are not pure plays or have some element, you know, like we discussed with the Glazers United, that just doesn't make them very attractive. And I think that's probably what's led to those poor returns in the markets. Mm. And then lastly, I think this is a very interesting conversation because there's a question that with the history and the fan base and the culture and everything, should clubs or sports franchises ever actually be public companies? Should they be financial vehicles? for-profit companies? 
I mean, that's, that's a difficult it's a bit, question. It, it's a bit philosophical now, but <laughs> it's like, a bit philosophical, yeah. there's a um, lot to be protected there. Do you know what I mean? You know, I mean, so in terms of data, I don't have the answer for that. I haven't ever looked back hard enough to see whether it's a net positive or net negative in the aggregate. But as a sports fan, I think what you want from your team is for them to be engaging in kind of long-term sustainable growth over the course of your lifetime. You know, you want to see them invest in great players to develop young players, to hire managers that have a vision for the club going forward. You certainly don't want to see the kind of boom and bust that can happen with clubs. And, you know, that happens regardless of whether they're publicly listed or privately owned. But I think trying to take a long-term sustainable vision and marry it with kind of short-term quarterly profit and loss accounts that are just part and parcel of being publicly listed companies, I think there's just a conflict there. Yeah. And it's it, to me, it's like analogous to uh, asking, should a religion be a public entity? Should we f- should one float a religion? Because can you think of the role that one's team plays across your entire life? It's not a million miles from the role that one's religion plays in in their life. It sits there. It's it's ever present. It burns inside you for your whole life. And that's at the fan level. Um, when you bring it up to the kind of management of the team level, or rather the ownership of the club level, you, you it just it's very hard to reconcile what people believe at the on the pitch and in the in the in the stadia uh, with what the actual owners want. It's it just it just doesn't fit right. It just grinds. Yeah, I think I mean the the counter argument I suppose would be that you know fans we want to see the best players, we want to have great stadiums and all that, but. Um, like you said, for, for a lot of people, this is a religion. It's much more than, yeah. you know, just watching a game. It's, it's something that they share with friends and family every week. It's really part of their culture. And there is that conflict there. There's a, where money is coming in and it feels like it's being destroyed or ruined or taken away. Mm, and when you think about it, like if, if I said to you, Rory, or to John Tyrrell, uh, our colleague who's also a mega fan of Man United, do you want to be a shareholder of Manchester United? It's quite a, Difficult one to answer because in your head, you know, you're a lifelong fan, but in your heart, you know that that's an investment question. And, you know, it's like someone who buys a holiday home abroad somewhere that has a romantic image. So they buy a beachside house in Jamaica because they love the romantic imagery, but the reality of the investment is entirely different. And I think that when you kind of fuse pure passion with cold hearted commercial decisions there's just a it's just it's incongruous it's like oil and water i just think that's the conflict there you know could you imagine whoever takes over from the glazers seeing mass protests and their names (laughs) being like shouted with vitriol every saturday by eighty thousand people you know that's not something you could consider from a normal (laughs) investment or like no. just oh, this is where I see a uh, return on my money for the next ten years. It's it, yeah. it, it it's very different, and yeah, maybe they shouldn't really be seen as financial vehicles for a lot of people, which I think mm. is becoming more and more common. Yeah, well, I mean, as a United fan, I think we're all celebrating the Glazers leaving, but perhaps prematurely, because like I said, there's not a lot of uh, there's not a lot of people out there who can afford to buy this club, and who knows, could be better the devil, you know. Yeah, mm. well, it's going to be a rounding error for Apple, like <laughs> players, <laughs> players playing with AirPods or something. Well, I hadn't heard that rumor, but I don't believe it for a second because Apple tries to stay non-tribal. It doesn't side. So, you know, you buy Man United and all of a sudden you've estranged uh, the other side of the stadia, so to speak, you know. Yeah, it's a good point. Moving on then, we're talking about a move described as one analyst 
Probably the most significant piece of corporate upheaval since Steve Jobs went back to Apple. Um, Bob Iger is back at Disney, replacing his handpicked replacement Bob Chapek after less than three months in the top spot. Iger is a bit of a Wall Street legend. He oversaw Disney stock grow fivefold in his 15-year reign and saw the acquisitions of Marvel, Pixar, and Lucasfilm, amongst others. Emmett, you have a bit of personal history with Disney, a longtime investor through its acquisition of Marvel. Are you happy to see Iger back? Oh yes, Mike, massively. So, um, when, when Disney announced in October 2019 that Bob Iger would step down, um, he'd been at the helm for 15 years and he'd been instrumental in turning Disney into like the new media powerhouse that we know as a result of several key acquisitions. And in fact, the year before that, he had just earned $66 million, which was at that time a thousand times more than the typical employee earns, which, which sparked some controversy at that time. Uh, Mike, can I give you two minute background on Please. Bob Iger before I'd we love dive into it? more. Well, he, uh, fit, I, I'm going to ignore the sarcasm, Mike. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, when he finished as CEO, uh, at the time when he actually finished in, uh, 2020 because he hung back a while because coronavirus, uh, arrived. Uh, but at, when he finished as CEO, Forbes estimated that he was worth around $690 million. So he's comfortable to say the least. But you know, like most people, he did start at the bottom. He, he grew up in a small, mostly working class town on Long Island in New York called Oceanside. And his mom was a stay at home mom. His dad uh, worked uh, in advertising and uh, he watched his dad move from job to job to job. Uh, because according to Iger in his book, he had trouble re- regulating his moods. And later on, his dad was diagnosed uh, with manic depression, is, is, is how he describes it. Now, um, again, according to his book, his dad used to push his kids to work so hard and to be productive that so they could be successful in a way that he hadn't been or never was. And as a child, he remembers his dad passing his bedroom at night to make sure he was spending time productively, as Iger says. Uh, which meant that he he wouldn't tolerate his kids doing anything other than doing their homework or engaging in something that would be better in helping them reach their goals. So a, a quote from the book, I, which I have here, says, I started working in eighth grade, shoveling snow and babysitting and working as a stock boy in a hardware store. Then at 15, he says he got a job. Uh, as a summer janitor in his school district, uh, which involved cleaning all the heaters and the desks in every classroom. And he says that he had to make sure that all the desks were gum free before the year started. But then later, when he was attending college in upstate New York, he spent nearly every weekend night in his freshman and sophomore year making pizza at the local pizza hut. I mean, is there anything this man cannot do? He sounds yeah. like the ultimate ultimate party well, guest he can make the pizza you, he can tell you what it's like to buy marvel <laughs> did you see what his wife said when he when he took back the disney job uh actually i did but remind me I, I, what was it <laughs> she's like i'm just delighted because now he's not going to run for president oh yeah <laughs> that's it yeah exactly yeah well he's you know dur- during his, his college years he said that something clicked and he was determined to work even harder than ever before and learn as much as possible and he, he didn't have you know, the same sense of regrets, you know, that his dad had around his career. So in 1974, when he was just 23, he started in ABC television as a studio supervisor after being a weatherman and a feature news reporter. So I'm sure if we go to YouTube, we can probably find weather reports by Bob Iger. I haven't looked, but they're 
he did it, so I'm sure it's there. Over over the course of the next, you know, three decades or so, he he held more than twenty positions at ABC before eventually being named the CEO of Disney in two thousand and five. And here's a here's a nice quote I think that sums up his life and his first tenure as CEO. He says, "I've been the lowliest crew member working on a daytime soap opera." and run a network that produced some of the most innovative television and one of the most infamous flops of all time. I've twice been on the side of the company being taken over and have acquired and assimilated several others, among them Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilm, and most recently 21st Century Fox. And through it all, he credits his father the most for encouraging him to work hard and stay productive in achieving his goals. And in just a final quote, he says, uh, I do know that so many of the traits that served me well in my career started with him. I hope he understood that too, which I think is lovely because I'm a, a big fan of good dads uh, because uh, I have one and I hope I am one. Anyway, Iger, who's 71, has repeatedly said, that he'd never turn uh, as Disney CEO. But as we are discussing on Monday, he told staffers that it was an easy yes to return to job. And he said it was the right thing for him to do because of his love for Disney and its employees. That's great. I love that backstory. Um, but, but let's talk Bob Chapek now for a while, who seems to have got the raw end of the deal. It was always going to be big shoes to fill. And I think if we're on the Man United uh we're still on the Man United talk. It's kind of like David Moyes coming in to replace Alex Ferguson. Um, Excellent analogy, Mike. Excellent. Yeah, it was hand-picked as <laughs> love, well. Love that segue. Yeah. <laughs> I was proud Let's of that talk one about again. <laughs> <laughs> but what, was this a necessary move for the Disney board? Uh, like the current stock price is at levels not seen since 2016, barring the COVID crash. Yeah, well, Chapek, um, he was in the job for less than three years and before he took the job, he ran theme parks and, and during his tenure as the CEO, he faced a lot of criticism for treatment of, uh, employees and also his response or rather business response to Florida's controversial don't say gay legislation. And I think what that was about was Walt Disney World theme parks are based in Florida where it is or maybe was publicly opposed to the state's don't say gay laws, which banned classroom discussion of sexual orientation and gender identity uh, in certain grades. Then he also made the decision to take away, and this is, this is nuts. He made the decision to take away budgetary power from creative heads. Now, let's not dive into that, but that just is not the way it goes. If you've empowered these people to produce magic, you have to give them the tools and the utility. And in a, in a memo earlier this month, he uh, he had announced plans for hiring freeze, layoffs, cost cuts, uh, which I don't think necessarily Bob Iger has, has disagreed with. I think Iger said uh, at his town hall during the week that uh, the freeze, uh, the hiring freeze will stay in place. And as you say, shares have fallen near, nearly, nearly 40%, I think, this year. But what's really key here is that s- several senior executives told board members that they'd lost confidence in Chapex leadership, according to CNBC, which prompted the company to pick up the phone and go, Hey, Bob, what are you doing? And he probably said, I'm in, I'm in the kitchen helping the wife. And she was like, just please, please offer him a job. <laughs> Get him out of here. He's dug up the garden six times in the last two months. <laughs> yeah, he's out painting the fence. I'll get him. So yeah, I, so I think the board could smell an exodus of top talent in the wind. And I think they did the right thing. 
Okay. So Iger's going to take the role for two years and the board has described him overseeing an increasingly complex period of industry transformation. One of the key changes Iger has promised to bring in is focusing on profitability over growth at Disney+, Plus, uh, which is a pretty significant change considering where the focus has been for the streaming service till now. How, how do you think this will affect the streaming industry and maybe Netflix in particular? Yeah, well, at his town hall there earlier this week, he did acknowledge Disney's focus has to shift towards making its streaming business profitable rather than concentrating on just adding more subscribers, which was Chapek's kind of gig. And I don't think it was mad either, but you know, there comes a point where every streaming company decides, right, that's it. Now we have to make money from this gang. So uh, he did note that Disney would not be pursuing any major acquisitions in the near future, which I think was quite uh, very much defined his first 15 years. Like when you look at the brands he brought into the wheelhouse, it's quite incredible. And he said that, uh, on Monday, he said that he was comfortable with. Disney's current set of assets. So really, apart from my Wall Street, there's nothing out there he should bid for. So I don't think there's, uh, I don't think a focus on profit is, is a source of worry for Netflix whatsoever because they're acting out their own strategy, uh, of profitable growth. But I, it's saying he's saying the right things in the times that we're in at the moment. Mm. And then just for fun, you've got two years. Would you like to see any significant changes as a Disney shareholder? be brought in or is this kind of measured sustainable growth strategy the probably the right direction i think they should build an ireland world theme park that's even more (laughs) irish than ireland and here wait you get a slow boat hold on you get a slow boat through a river of guinness you sing songs oh hold on there's a roller coaster called the irish goodbye where you have to say goodbye at least six or seven times before you're allowed to get off. And, uh, and for non-Irish listeners, by the way, in Ireland, you can't just say goodbye at the end of a phone call. You have to say bye, 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 talk bye, to bye, you. bye, right, bye, bye, okay, uh, bye. Maybe Ireland world would smell of turf. Maybe bacon is called rashers. I, I, oh, actually I've, I've won in Ireland world. There's a. <laughs> I'm laughing at my own. Uh, Irish mammies stand at the entrance and insist you bring an umbrella and a and coat. A jacket. Even, even though it's in Florida where it's never cold and umbrellas are kind of useless because it's just like someone dumped an ocean. So anyway, yeah, Ireland land and land. I hope, I hope that's what he does. I think it's a great idea. Do. I'll, uh, I'll draft the email. <laughs> well done for fighting against negative Irish stereotypes there. I was about to say. Really, <laughs> I just, really promoting Ireland Incorporated there. I love Ireland. You know I do. <laughs> I just started a show there last night and one of the characters has that dodgy, bad Irish accent and it's just, you, you have to turn it off. Like, <laughs> What's the can? show, Mike? Uh, Come on. Boardwalk, Boardwalk Empire. Oh, so right. Yeah. Of, yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you see the Lord of the Rings one? Is there an Irish accent? No. Uh, oh, the, all the hobbits have really bad Irish accents. <laughs> is this the new one on? Yeah, uh, on Prime. Power, the ring of what's it called? Ring of Power. Ring of Power. Thing, yeah. But they're yeah. not Irish accents. They're Middle Earth or whatever. They're just something else. They're I mean, I don't know where. I don't Irish know Irish. what part of Middle Earth they're in. But Lenny Henry <laughs> sounds like yeah. he's from Sligo. It's obviously close to home, but like it has to be the worst accent on like the worst accent done on movies and everything like do you remember tom cruise's famous one? Oh, that was the uh, famously the worst, the worst <laughs> one of all yeah that was the worst of all it was home and a home away, what was it home i can't home remember and away or something like that oh yeah there's lots of stuff going on here in my wall street at the minute including some very exciting developments in that horizon emmet uh could you tell us how the service is going and maybe tease some for our for our listeners here My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. 
Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, 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 I've, we've introduced a new feature, which is a weekly sentiment tracker, which is really just red, amber, and green uh, flag against all the stocks that have pitched and bought. And Horizon, how's it going? Well, the last year has been awful. It has been terrible. But uh, the sensible and thinkers among us know that the greatest time to buy anything is in a sale. It's something that you want is in a sale, and this has been a fire sale on the market. I, I recorded a piece for Horizon yesterday, which uh, I'll just regurgitate now, and it's it, I think it's quite interesting that the S&P 500 is down, I think it's around, down around 17, 18% uh, this year. But the truth of what's happening is being masked by Apple, Microsoft, and uh, Alphabet, who together make up 13% of the index. So when you think about one-eighth of the value of an index of 500 companies is being influenced by just three businesses. And these three businesses have proven to be extremely resilient in the times that we're in. So the S&P being only down 17% is, uh, is, it is not the truth because it only last Thursday, 40, uh, 41 stocks in the S&P 500 hit their all time low. So you have these three stocks up at the very top, uh, Apple, Microsoft and Alphabet, which are chugging along just fine, along with others that when you add them in like Berkshire and, and Tesla, uh, are really masking the truth of what we're seeing. So there's barely a stock out there that hasn't fallen 70 80 and even 90% from last December. And I've invested in some of those a year ago, but I've invested in some of those three weeks ago, as you know. And I think that we are really looking at far deeper value than the S&P 500 is uh, exhibiting because of that factor that these kind of elite few at the top of the, at the top of the heap are masking a, a, a bigger truth. So, um, yeah. So Horizon, how's it going? Um, as a service, we have a wonderful community. We have pitched, I have pitched stocks that I am quite certain are going to grow 10, 20 and 30 fold. Um, not all of them, of course, some are going to be dogs, but it's the winners always compensate you for the losers. I am really excited about this phase in the services history. Anyway, long answer to a short question. It's going good. And we've launched a uh, sentiment tracker, uh, and that's every Monday. So you can see a traffic light status and all the stocks that we're, we're watching.
That's great. Thank you very much, Emmett. Uh, moving on to mailbag then. We've got a question in about PayPal and its recent run of poor performance. Rory, down 60% year, 60% year to date and almost 75% from all-time highs in 2021. <laughs> What's gone wrong? Uh, well, a major part of it is literally what we have seen with thousands of companies over the last year and a bit. Um, PayPal was, of course, one of the great benefactors of the COVID-19 pandemic when Back in those days when we were all in lockdown, there was, you know, non-essential brick and mortar retail. It was essentially completely shut down. People were bored um, and had a lot of money in their pockets. Uh, so it was e-commerce's time to shine and uh, and that that's PayPal's bread and butter. Um, so obviously there was a huge spike in usage of PayPal services. They went from growing around revenue around 15 to 20 percent to growing revenue about 25 30 percent in just the space of a few months um since then you know that's that's basically stopped <laughs> it's been total pull forward in demand um active accounts have just hit a major roadblock in the last quarter the company added 3 million new active accounts in the same quarter the year before and they added 13 million uh, total payments volume was up 29% in Q1 2021. It was only 9% in the most recent report. And, you know, even if you look at payment volume on a sequential basis, it's actually flat or even down over the last couple of months or the last couple of quarters, excuse me. Uh, so PayPal, you know, it, it was a business that was growing rapidly and was attracting high growth valuations that we were seeing throughout kind of 2018, 2019 especially throughout the pandemic that growth it seems is over for the time being they just aren't attracting the same value the same kind of multiples the same kind of valuations anymore today the company's trading at a price to free cash flow of 14 uh in 2020 that number was closer to 50 uh the five-year average according to morningstar is 42 so you know that's a huge part of it the pull forward that we saw in many companies during the pandemic is now coming to kind of bite the company um and of course there's a looming recession there's a weakness in consumer spending. If we were to take, you know, what Walmart's management said a couple of months ago, um, that they were seeing consumers basically walk by discretionary items in favor of essentials, you know, that's obviously going to have a massive impact for e-commerce. Uh, that's obviously going to impact PayPal. Uh, and management's been pretty clear about this. Guidance has been very conservative. They're only predicting between 8 and 10 million new active accounts in the coming quarter. And that should be a very strong quarter from them. And they've even come out and said that they're going to be trying to focus more on getting more out of their current users than trying to aggressively grow users. And that's basically admitting that user growth is over for the time being. And we've seen this before with multiple companies when a growth story turns into a value story, uh, investors panic and, you know, multiples can compress. That's the economic factors. Obviously, that's impacting loads of businesses in terms of PayPal itself. It's, you know, they've had a couple of you know, company specific issues. Um, for one, they ended what was a quite lucrative partnership with eBay in 2018 that accounted for 11% of their total payments volume. And um, today that's down below kind of 4%. Uh, they've tried to go out and replace those with new partnerships. They've made a lot of big noise about new deals with the likes of Amazon and Apple. Um, but it's too early to see those reflected in the results. Obviously, while the company was in high growth mode as well, Vemno was one of the real growth stories in the business. But, you know, once we pull back from this kind of this uh, period where people are investing in growth and you look at Vemno with kind of cold, hard eyes, it's a small part of the business. They haven't really figured out the revenue model yet. And so investors aren't willing to pay that much as much up for that as they were willing to do. And, you know, finally, there's, you know, there's kind of been this kind of blurring recently of kind of the difference between point of sale and online payments over the past few years, the likes of 
Apple Pay, Google Pay have certainly contributed to that. And so that's kind of raising a couple of questions of over is is PayPal as strong a business as it was five years ago? Okay, thanks for that. We'll finish then with an elevator pitch. I think I know what Rory's isn't going to be. Um, <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I, I am a shareholder in PayPal, by the way, <laughs> long term, and will continue to be. There's, there's plenty of positives in the company as well, but you asked what went wrong. Uh, I told you what went wrong. <laughs> Explaining the downtrend, I suppose. Okay, elevator pitches. Emmett, start us out there. Yeah, I'm going to go with Pool Corporation and its ticker's Pool, as in a swimming pool. And its name tells you all. It's the number one distributor of pool products around the world. And funny, even though here, well, in Ireland here, there's, there's absolutely, I think, near zero heritage of people having a pool at their home. But in bigger, more developed countries, it's a thing. And, um, Pool, uh, Pool Corporation is kind of recession proof. Um, 58% of its sales come from recurring sources like the maintenance uh, supplies that are needed to be purchased for your pool, no matter what you do. And uh, 22% of purchases come from replacement and refurbishment services, which the company calls semi-discretionary. So it's a $12.4 billion business. It's down like everything from last December's highs. It's PE is 16. Only I'm only saying that to indicate that it's ruggedly profitable. And it ticks away doing something in a niche area that's, uh, that it's going to be around forever. Like the business has tons of cash. Uh, I think no debt. And I, it's, it's repurchasing. I think it's repurchased about a half a billion dollars of shares over the past year, which really shows that they, they see value in their own stock. It has a yield of 1.2%. And it's, I think it's a very fine investment and would sit nicely in a portfolio over the ages, throwing off dividend and probably growing as well. Yeah. Interesting. I would never have thought of a pool company as like a razor and blade model, but it seems like it's getting most of its revenue from beyond just installing pools. For when sure. You said it's it was a. Like- uh- recession proof Emmett all I could think about was that scene the big shorts you know when they're walking around the empty estate and the, the alligator comes out of the pool <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly um yeah you've got your own little swamp plan as well if you decide not to maintain it <laughs> <laughs> okay Rory your uh your elevator pitch yeah and taking another look at Deer & Co uh, it's a company I'm keeping uh, my eye on for quite a while now they're the maker of very high-end farm and forestry equipment, most famously their John Deere brand, which many see as the Ferrari of farm equipment. And they have fierce customer loyalty. Many farmers will talk about themselves bleeding green when they talk about what kind of equipment they buy. This is, you know, the the fact that their equipment is so high-end is backed up by an incredibly robust support network that basically ensures that farmers get their equipment repaired as quickly as possible, which is obviously very important in the world of farming. It's a company that's innovation-led. They spend about 40% more in R&D than their closest competitor every year. They're currently rolling out a line of self-driving tractors, which can plow fields themselves, which doesn't just seem to be another PR stunt. They actually do seem to work. Uh, they've also got things like sprayers that can differentiate between crops and weeds. They've got you know drones that can basically map out your field for you and plot where your tractor goes. It's obviously, you know, it's obviously incredibly important right now, given what's happening in the world, the rising cost of energy, which is leading to the rising cost of food. They've just released a really strong uh, report, which saw them absolutely smash estimates. Revenue was up, I think, by 40%. They brought in nearly a billion dollars more than analysts had expected. They had 
you know, strong margins showing that they're keeping a lid on costs in the supply chain. Net income rose 75%. There's, there's kind of some slight concerns about the company. They've kind of got a little bit of kickback from farmers. There's a kind of right to repair movement that's happening. Uh, Deere says that, you know, their products are now a lot more like aeroplanes than they are like phones. And therefore they shouldn't, you know, you need technically still people to go in and repair them. And I think, you know, given that they have a huge amount of customer loyalty, they're probably able to work through that because people really love their products. So yeah, it just, it seems like a business right now that can kind of do no wrong. So um, yeah, quite interested in it. Very good. Airplanes like tractors. Thanks for them, lads. That's it for today's show. Remember, if you have any questions you like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter. That's at MyWallStreetHQ. On TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review for us on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today and we'll talk to you next week. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.